but functionally, <laughs> it's doing everything it's supposed to be doing. Yeah, but it took me 10 minutes to set up your device before I could use it. It's not fitting my workflow. I really don't care if you call it a minimal viable product. It's a bad experience, and I'm not right. using it. Welcome to another episode of MedTech Mindset. I'm your host, Dan Henrich, and I'm Director of Marketing at Archimedic. On this episode, we're continuing my conversation with Adam Dakin, Managing Director of Dream It Health, about raising capital and what it takes to get funded in MedTech. If you haven't heard part one yet, you might want to pause this episode and go back to catch up on the one from last week. For our returning listeners, I'm just going to back the tape up a moment or two to refresh your memories and give you some context. Here we go. The reality of where we are today in the funding cycles um, in the med tech space is the vast majority of investors want to see their money going toward commercialization. Right. So while you might not necessarily be on the eve of commercialization, you know, you haven't hired sales guys, the manufacturing plant's not chugging away for, uh, you know, spitting out products and then creating inventory for three shifts a day, right? You might not be at that point, but investors want line of sight to that. They want to believe that my money is going to get you to that point, And at least you'll be funded for an initial market entry. So that varies widely, right? If you have a very simple widget, uh, with a very straightforward regulatory pathway, it doesn't, it doesn't cost a lot to manufacture, right? then that kind of a company may very well be interesting. Whereas another company, it's still going to take a lot more money to get to the commercialization point, mm-hmm. even though it might have a really compelling like this, market like opportunity. This kind of example we started out with, right? That that has a lot of moving parts, right? Right. Yeah. So, you know, and market adoption especially if it has a big digital health component, is a big risk, right? That showing that early product market fit in an incredibly competitive environment. That's the other thing we didn't really talk talk about, but digital health is ridiculously crowded, right? Because the barriers to entry are so low. Two guys on a laptop can can open up a digital health company tomorrow. Can't really do that on the med tech side, right? There's a certain amount of capital that's required to build stuff, test it, right? So... You know, that's why the digital health space is just ridiculously crowded with lookalike products. And as an investor, it's very hard to differentiate what's real and what's not. Yeah. Um, so as a digital health investor, we almost have to have at least some reference. You, you have to have some referenceable customers to even be considered mm-hmm. by a professional investor. And actually, you need on the digital health side, you actually need real revenue. You need one to two million dollars of annual revenue as a general rule to be seriously considered by any professional investor. Whereas the good news on the med tech side, you can get funded a lot earlier than that. You don't need that one to two million dollars of revenue, but you need some compelling clinical data mm-hmm. that this works in the hands of of real users. Okay. Right? Yeah. So kind of off on a little bit of a tangent yeah. there, but I, well, I, think I mean it's an speaking of point. one to two million dollars of revenue. You know, so th- this last milestone that we that we have laid out in our outline here is your first commercial sales, right? Who's investing? Who's investing then? Is is that where you is that where you really start to tr- attract a, a lot of competition, in institutional investors, because your um, acquisition uh, 
potential is, is much higher or? Yeah, well, that's the time at which, I mean, once you have that line of sight to commercialization and as an investor, that's where I want my money to go, right? I don't want my, I, I understand some of my money will always go to continued product development, more clinical data, product line expansion. That's all good. But I want to be in the market as fast as possible. So I want to believe that in most cases, not always, but in most cases that at least some of that funding will get you to the point of commercialization. Will get you, because that's what the acquirers want, right? right? They're not going to take a lot of market risk. That doesn't mean you have to have a lot of customers, right? Those can be your clinical trial sites that convert from doing trials to actually being paying customers. Hopefully mm-hmm. they like the product. They've already had a good experience with you. Sure. Uh, and you've already anticipated taking them through that purchasing process. So they become your first customer and your first users, right? That's a good strategy to use, but that's what acquirers want to see. Somebody's got to use it. Somebody's got to be willing to pay for it, right? Um, you know, um, we haven't really talked much about the reimbursement piece, but clearly, depending on your product, if it's not well reimbursed under an existing code or payment scheme, you might have to get new codes. Right. And that's a long, arduous proposition, right? That's right. I mean, that is, you know, our in our broken, fragmented healthcare system, that is a long slog, right? Getting some, any kind of universal coverage for something is no matter how good your technology or platform may be, investors are going to be very, investors have been burned a lot on great technologies with really compelling clinical data that had a real patient benefit, but took years for CMS to get a new code. To get universal coverage, including CMS, Mm -hmm. right? And no matter how good it is, people won't use something if it's not paid for all right. Well, that's a lot to think about. I think for our, for our listeners, for sure. But um, maybe let's maybe we can get into the the um, nitty gritty a little bit more. Um, you know, like I said, you've been on both sides of the pitch table a bunch of times, uh, and in fact, I think you've written some some pretty good articles on um, what are the do's and don'ts when you're making. You know, if you get to the point where you're pitching to institutional investors. What are the common mistakes that that you know medtech founders and entrepreneurs make in those pitches? Sure, I mean there's sort of some pitch fundamentals, uh, and actually on the Dreamit website there's some really good content that that is really helpful. Like what needs to be in your pitch deck? Great. Right? Well, let's link. We'll link to that when we post this on our blog. So yeah. I think that's that. There's some really valuable stuff. One of my partners does an amazing webinar on how to put together a good pitch deck, right? Because there's blocking and tackling, right? You need the right content, right? Can't tell you how many companies pitch us. Like, where's your competition slide? Oh, that's not here. Left that out, huh? Oh, wait, the market size, no slide there either. Oh, wait, clinical development plan, that's not there either, right? It, those, while not sort of, you know, we call them record scratches, right? Those may not be sort of mortal mistakes. They show that the team is unsophisticated, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If you haven't thought about these things and put them into your plan, what else haven't you thought about, right? right? So it's a little bit of a red flag. Uh, so that's basic stuff. You know, have the right content. Make sure it's defendable. Have references to the sources in your deck, right? 
um, we're going to challenge you aggressively on all your critical assumptions, right? You better have data to back up whatever assumptions you're making. You, you, you better have data and sources to back it up. Again, very common mistake. A lot of entrepreneurs walk in, you know, we call it the, the hand wave at, uh, at Dream It. The market is this big, hands waving, <laughs> yeah. right? Every doctor's going to want one, hands waving. And then that comes with a subtle, you know, I can see the bubble above the entrepreneur's head when we start challenging that says, if you don't see how big this market is, you're an idiot, Mm -hmm. right? Why don't you see the vision that I see and believe what I'm telling you? It's like, because you're not backing it up with data, right? Mm -hmm. If you're going to say every doctor is going to want one, how many doctors did you talk to? How many doctors have actually used it? Have How many healthcare systems are actually purchasing it? Are you in contracting with a bunch of healthcare systems? That convinces us that someone's actually going to want it and buy it. If you don't have any of that, you're just making assumptions with nothing to back those assumptions up. And we don't bet on assumptions, right? right? So that's a very common mistake, I think. Uh, so just the, I mean, it's all the classic stuff, right? I mean, some of this stuff, is ad nauseum. Yeah, show us a big market. Show us you have intellectual property. Show us you're a great team that knows how to execute. Those are all table stakes, right? We That's just, if you don't have those boxes checked, don't bother showing up, okay? that That's kind of fundamentals of what every venture investor will tell you. You know, got to be a great team, right? Ad nauseum. Management, management, management. We bet on management. You know, we, we bet on the jockey, not the horse. All true, although all very cliche, right? At the end of the day, though, we form impressions, first impressions. And I will tell you, I've asked multiple venture capitalists this question. They decide within the first 60 seconds, most of the time, if you are a venture-backable team. Mm -hmm. So you get one chance to make that first impression. And that's why, you know, a thoughtful, cohesive pitch deck and done in the right way where right up front, right at the very beginning, you're really making it clear what your value proposition is and how you're differentiated from the hundreds of other deals most investors are looking at is critical. Because if you don't do that, I guarantee you they will be reaching for their smartphones within the first two or three minutes and, and you've put you know you've been put into the you know into the no bucket very quickly. Mm-hmm. That also, and the way to, one way to stay out of that no bucket is also make sure you're super well prepared. Again, surprise. It's it's like going to an interview. Would you go to an interview where you knew nothing about the company or the people who were interviewing you? Well, some people do and they probably don't. (laughs) Right? A lot of, a lot of people do and they don't get the job. I'm guessing. Right? Yep. Um, I mean, when a company is coming uh, to a venture fund, it is very common at the very beginning for the fund to say, so tell us what you know about our fund. You you should be able to say, I know what deals you've done. I know what stage you invest in. I know what your profile is. There are these other companies in your portfolio that I think are very synergistic. Yeah, we want you as an investor because you have expertise in this space. Oh, I know that two of your partners were on the board of another company that was very successful. We think we can really learn and benefit from folks who have that expertise, right? Mm-hmm. One, it's it has the virtue of all being true. And two, it shows that you did your homework before you showed up. Mm-hmm. 
Because a lot of companies answer that with really amorphous, oh, we know you're, you're, you're Andreessen Horowitz and you're such a great firm and we would just love to have, you know, such a brand. Like that, that, that's, very, that's a very weak response. It, it shows you're, you're not well prepared, right? Mm-hmm. So walk into the fund, do your homework, know, know who the partners are, know their backgrounds, know their other investments, like everything in life. It's all about preparation and then have that pitch tight rehearse it on other people uh you know solicit critical feedback it's like you know you don't go to broadway with your first play Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. go off off broadway (laughs) yeah pitch friends family then take it to investors you know won't invest right let them throw tomatoes at you for a while Mm -hmm. they're probably not going to invest anyway or just call in favors. Hey, I know you're not going to invest, but would you mind just giving me some some critical feedback, mm-hmm. point out the holes, you know, in our story and our pitch, right? Once you've rehearsed it a bunch of times, then and you feel like it's tight and it's game ready, you know, then you want to get in front of the high potential targets who might actually invest in your company. A quick break here to remind our listeners that MedTech Mindset is a production of Archimedic, a full-service medical device developer helping innovators who are struggling with technical, commercial, regulatory, or manufacturing challenges accelerate their next new products along the path to market. Our clients span established device manufacturers, top-tier academic hospitals, and venture-backed startups. Learn more at Archimedic.com. So I want to go back to something you said earlier about, you know, kind of the, the importance of being capital efficient early in the process. That's something we run to a lot when we're talking to uh, to early stage medtech entrepreneurs. They want to be, you know, they want to be really, they want to know that they can get as far as they can on that initial money that might be theirs and their friends and families and that sort of thing. But it seems like sometimes uh, they they want to be so capital efficient that they're willing to sacrifice things like speed to market and. Um, you know, and you know they they want to kind of do an MVP, which is not the same in the med tech world as it is in the digital health world, perhaps. But how do you how do you view that as an as an investor? Um, that relationship between when somebody's you know is emphasizing capital efficiency against other factors. Yeah, so I think you're you're highlighting the point, right? That these companies can often be penny wise and pound foolish, mm-hmm. right? So capital efficiency is table stakes, but most startups are by necessity, are reasonably capital efficient, right? They're not paying themselves market salaries, right? They're not, they're not renting an expensive office space. They don't have super nice office furniture. If you have those things, that's a red flag. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we do. We see companies where, you know, the management team is paying themselves ridiculous salaries. And we're like, okay, that's, that's a red flag. That is probably not a team um, that we're going to be excited about investing in, Right. Those really aren't are more the exceptions than the rules because most most founding teams realize that that capital needs to be used to develop the product, not for sort of other perks. Um, and, and you just if you're at a startup, you, you you hopefully understand that you're going to be making some financial sacrifices in hopes of of a longer term gain. Um, but that said, yeah, there are places to spend the money, right? And that and those places include developing well let's even roll it back further the first step is actually understanding the problem you're solving right and it is amazing to me and i'm sure you guys see this where 
a doctor or an inventor shows up with their widget and they're like, this is going to save the world. This is a problem that I face each and every day. And man, I'm just so excited about this. Well, that's not necessarily a market, right? Solving one problem for one doctor. Great data point. (laughs) Right. Right. Where's the trend? It takes three points to make a trend, right? I mean, you have to talk to a lot of customers. And that's not just, that may not just be the person who's actually using the device in their hand. That probably includes who's going to pay for it, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the customer and that constellation of stakeholders that will touch your device, you need to talk to lots and lots of those people before you run off, you know, expend intellectual capital first to understand the problem that you're actually solving and who you're solving it for, right? Amazing, like that sort of deep discovery phase, how many companies just kind of skip past that with the assumption that, you know, if we build it, they will come, that every doctor will want one, trust me, right? So I think that's, you cannot spend too much time understanding and really coming up with a great problem statement, right? Great companies generally have great problem statements because it will tell you in any healthcare system, if you're not solving a big and urgent problem that's on the very short list of problems that somebody high up in the organization wants to solve, you're not going to get purchased, right? Mm-hmm. That, that you won't, you won't, you might start the purchasing process, but you won't survive it, right? It's such a slog. You need so many champions to, to get you through that process you, you will never survive it. So first it starts with really understanding the problem that you're trying to solve. So it doesn't cost much to talk to people and really right. come up with a, a good problem statement, which of course mm-hmm. will also define or help, help inform the features, the specifications of the product or platform that you're ultimately going mm-hmm. to develop. Now, let's say you've gotten past that and now you are ready to spend some real money on product development, right? Mm-hmm. And you're right. The MVP concept, which I think is almost a bad way to describe it. Um, I mean, we tend to think of it, I, I like to think of it more as a minimal viable experience as opposed to a minimal viable product. And because mm-hmm. the bar is higher in healthcare, right? You, you right. can't take what you might call a minimal viable product into a healthcare system, but if they don't like it, you're done. Right. And you can be like, but functionally, <laughs> it's doing right. everything it's supposed to be doing. Yeah, but it took me 24 clicks, uh, you know, and it took it, and it took me 10 minutes to set up your device before I could use it. It's not fitting my workflow. I really don't care if you call it a minimal viable product. It's a bad experience, and I'm not right. using it. Right. right. So I think I think that concept sends you know people have a perception of what a minimal viable product is. That doesn't mean it's ready to put in the hands of potential customers. Right. Um, that that's sort of a just a you know a little bit of a divergence, but. Yeah, there, you know, but when you look at the other pieces of the business that are going to be critical, intellectual property is always critical with medical devices, right? No one's going to fund you if you're not building something that A, they think, you know, you'll be able to protect and keep as yours, and B, you won't infringe somebody else's patents, freedom to operate, right? So, yeah, that's a place that's worth spending money. Expensive lawyers, yeah, you wanna you wanna hire lawyers that have experience in your space. If you're an ultrasound device, hire lawyers that have worked on ultrasound devices. Mm-hmm. Right, just makes sense. Um, you know, uh, regulatory, same thing. Right, 
if you're an ultrasound device, hire regulatory experts that know that space, right? Not only do they have that huge sort of pattern recognition from all the experience, but they also probably have relationships in the FDA within those people that assess ultrasound technology that's going to facilitate the process for you. Mm -hmm. Those people are expensive. There's no way of getting around it. Entrepreneurs cringe as I, as I do when I hear the hourly rates that some of these consultants get. But at the end of the day, they're actually worth it, right? Mm-hmm. So always tell entrepreneurs, you know, hire the expensive lawyers, hire the expensive regulatory consultants, hire the good product developers who know what they're doing. I mean, you know, there's a, you know, there are a lot of product development firms out there that don't really understand the medical side. They're happy to knock mm-hmm. out a widget for you, mm-hmm. right? But does it meet all the standards? Will it pass electrical testing at the hospital, right? right. Will it... Will it meet the FDA standards when you finally are ready to put that 510K in? If the answer to those are no, you're not working with the right firm, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, uh, the firms like Smithwise are the places you want to go because you guys understand what those requirements are. And yeah, guess what? That costs more to develop than going to some generic product design firm that's going to knock out a prototype that's not going to sort of that that effort won't be translatable as you continue your development pathway. Hey, thanks right? for saying that. I'll buy you dinner later. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's it's really true. Look, I've done a lot of projects with you guys, so you know, um, you know, this is not a paid advertisement. I, you know, I, I've seen the difference with firms that do product development with companies that don't have that depth of experience. And it's just, it's very short-sighted. It is less expensive in the short term. It's, you know, there's an expression, right? There's uh, there's always, you know, there's never time to do it right, but there's always but there's always time to do it over, mm-hmm. right? Right. Yeah. And, and it's a lot of entrepreneurs who, who make that sort of mistake. Great, great. Hey, I know we're coming up on the, on the end of the time we have set aside for this, but... Um, do have a, a question about leadership teams because I know that I know that investors look very closely at the team that's going to be guiding this thing to market. Um, often, I think we see in this space there's a change in the leadership team as a product approaches commercialization. How do you view that, and what what do investors <clears throat> excuse me what do investors look like at, look for at different stages in terms of the skill sets that they expect to be part of the team? that's going to be able to bring this product to its next milestone. Yeah. So the vast majority of startups have technical founders, right? So that that's an engineer. That could be a doctor um, who brings the clinical expertise. But the commercialization expertise, for the most part, is not resident within the company during the early days of product development, right? And as investors, that's perfectly fine. That's, that's what we expect to see. Um, but again, back to the prior conversation, we are all about commercialization. What's it going to take to get there? What's the go-to-market strategy when this thing gets to market? Who understands that? Who's going to build that out and execute, right? Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> we sort of see two scenarios. One is attractive and one is not. The one scenario is, hey, we're the founders, we're the inventors, we're super smart, they probably are, and we can take this thing the distance, right? Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll build it, we'll sell it, we'll do the marketing, we'll figure out the go-to-market. Maybe that's true, 
But for the most part, those teams don't have that skill set. Okay? Mm-hmm. So then one of two scenarios plays out. The company makes great progress. That's awesome. It starts to have line of com- sight to commercialization. Great. And that team wants to hold on and do the execution. And the investors say, hold up. You're just not the right team. And that can be a difficult conversation to have because at that point, the investors want to bring in outside expertise or senior level management team, even a new CEO of the company to say, okay, at this point, the focus has shifted. We're, we're focusing away from the development, still very important, but we are all about getting this thing to the market, right? The better scenario... So should the technical founders be, right? <laughs> absolutely, right? They're, they're exactly right. Their vested interest is in seeing this see, succeed commercially, right. right? The better way to position this is for the technical founders to say, we get that. We're all on board. We cannot wait for an awesome team that gets... When we get to that point where we have line of sight to commercialization we realize we're probably not the team to do that. So we will fully support, engage with getting that, you know, that management team in or those experts on board that can take the company to that next step. Like that's music to an mm-hmm. investor's so when it's sincere. That shows right? maturity and, and understanding of, of the, the industry, right? Exactly, yeah. right? Um, because every investor has countless war stories of you know a CTO or a founder who didn't want to give up the reins and it becomes it becomes hugely problematic for the company in in ways that some are obvious but some are less obvious right it's extremely difficult to raise capital for a company where there's tension between the board of directors and the founders over this issue of you know, bringing in the man, you know, the next, uh, the commercialization team, right? Because that's going to become apparent to investors as they go through the due diligence process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if it becomes apparent that that's an actual diligence issue, it just gives us a reason to walk away very quickly. Like, we don't want to peel back the onion and figure out who's upset, why are they upset. Right. We call it founder drama. It happens <laughs> all the time, right? Yeah. They're not getting along. They, you know, The founder's vision for how this thing gets commercialized is totally different than the CEO's vision or the board's vision, right? We don't want to figure out who's right and wrong. We don't have the time. We're just going to walk away, mm-hmm. right? So that alignment between, okay, we have this awesome technical team, they've really built an amazing product, but now we need to really think about the next step of the company is really important. And it's, you know, you've the board, the founders, the future CEO, they all have to be extremely well aligned. Well, um, I think we could continue this for a while, but uh, you have some products to commercialize. So uh, Adam, I really want to thank you for your time Thanks, Dan. No, it's a pleasure. I'm happy to do it. And that's our show. If you liked it or if you didn't, head over to medtechmindset.com and submit a contact us form to let us know why. We'll also review suggestions about topics and guests for upcoming episodes. MedTech Mindset is a production of Archimedic and is produced in our Philadelphia office. Our theme music is composed, performed, and personally curated by the Polish Ambassador. 
Thanks again to Adam Dakin and Dream Adventures for two engaging episodes, and thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time on MedTech Mindset.